Welcome to Mission Viejo Christian Church. Today, Pastor Mike Maiola is bringing the word to you. So open up your Bibles and listen in. All right, so um, this is the beginning of a new year, obviously. And uh, I don't know about you, but for me, that is great news. I am so excited to be leaving 2019 behind um, and starting fresh. Uh, I've kind of shared with you, if you've been here, um, what my life has been like for the last year. Um, and 2019 was especially difficult. Um, nine months ago, my, my dad passed away, and it was horrible. It's been this, this real tough thing that my family has been walking through. And what makes it especially worse for me um, is that it happened three months before my wedding. And I was devastated by this because my dad is the person who I would go to for advice. He was the person that I would depend on for, um, for guidance. And he was a marriage counselor. This is what he did. He ran a, a nonprofit marriage um, uh, organization that him and my mom would travel the country and they would speak at churches about how to have a healthy Christ-centered marriage. And so my entire life, I had waited till I was married so that I could sit in on one of those seminars and that I could be part of that and I could get his um, wisdom and experience and, and knowledge about how to have a healthy marriage. And so the fact that he passed away right before I got married really, really stung. I have to come to terms now with the fact that I am not going to get specific direction from him when it comes to my marriage. And I think, uh, if I'm being honest, sometimes I feel that way spiritually, too. I, I read the Bible, and I get frustrated. I, I, I don't know about you, but I, I read the Bible, and sometimes it feels so unrelatable. I, I'm going through the book of Exodus in my personal devotion right now, and I'm getting mad because time after time in the book of Exodus, God shows up and just talks face-to-face with Moses and tells him exactly what he wants him to do. He gives Moses, like, down to the inch how big everything is supposed to be in the tabernacle and what, what material he's supposed to use. And God even names names of who he's supposed to tell to do what. And it's like, well, duh. If God showed up in my life face-to-face and said, hey, Shane, here's exactly what I want you to do on this day at this time with this person, I would do it. But that's not how life works. And so I get mad sometimes when I read the Bible because it feels so unrelatable. Any of you there with me this morning? And I'm at this point in my life where I have to make all these major decisions, right? I just got married. I just made the decision to go back to school. Um, My wife is going to be graduating this semester, and so she has to decide where where she's going to start her career. We're going to have kids at some point, hopefully not soon. Please pray for me. But at some point, we're going to make that mistake and decide to have kids. (laughs) I'm at this point in my life where I have to make all of these decisions And if God just showed up in my life face-to-face and said, do this and this and this at this time, it would be so easy. But that's not how life works. And, you know, it's interesting because this doesn't come up in the Bible. The Bible is about God, and so it doesn't really tell you what to do when God isn't speaking to you directly because the Bible is about all the times when God spoke directly. And so I read the Bible for guidance, and I can't find the answers there either, and it ends up making me more and more frustrated. But there's actually two books of the Bible where God is not mentioned at all. Two out of the 66 books, 
no mention of God. One of them is the book Song of Songs. Don't worry, that's not the one we're talking about today. Uh, if you don't know what that book's about, <laughs> check it out. Um, it's kind of a, it's a poem that is kind of a metaphor about the relationship between, it's about a husband and wife, and the, the poem is about that. And it's a metaphor for God's relationship with his people. So it doesn't really count because it doesn't mention God, but the whole thing is a metaphor about God. But there's another book, uh, one, one that's a narrative story about characters that have to make big, life-altering decisions, and yet God is not mentioned. That book is the book of Esther, and we're going we're gonna to be looking at that this morning, and we're going to look and see how does Esther find direction when God doesn't speak directly? How do we find direction when God is not talking to us audibly, when the heavens don't part and, and an audible voice comes from heaven? How do we today find direction in our lives? As we look through it, um, I, I want us to be, to be looking at vision. You know, that's we're in the new year. I think everyone wants a fresh vision. They want fresh direction. This is the time when we refocus our lives and say, okay, where am I going? As Pastor Stephanie pointed out, some of us, that's the gym for two weeks. But I want us to have a more sustainable, what direction is God moving us in? A, a lot of the, the stuff I'm going to be talking about this morning um, comes from a book called Hazon, which is a, a Hebrew word that I butchered. And uh, basically, Hazon is the Hebrew word for vision. It's written by Craig Rochelle, who's the pastor at Life Church. Um, and if any of it sticks out to you, what I say this morning, check out that book because it's really helpful in finding the vision for your life. If you were here with us in November, uh, we went through a series called Clash of Kings. And basically, this uh, told the story of the Israelites in a period of their history known as the Babylonian captivity. So, where we're at in the story is uh, God has shown up and he's saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. He, he's taken them out of Egypt, and he's made them into a nation, and he's ruling over them as their king. And they say, yeah, we don't want you. We want a human king. And God is hurt, but he gives in and gives them a human king. Their human kings fail them and lead them into captivity by the Babylonians. Eventually, the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians. And so when this story picks up of Esther, uh, the, it's been about 100 years since Persia conquered Babylon. And so there are a group of Jewish people that are living throughout Persia that even though they were allowed to return to Israel, they decided, yeah, my family's been here for generations. I'm just going to stay in Persia. So that's where we're at in the story. Um, and so the story of Esther begins with a king and a party. And this king is a king named Xerxes. If you've ever seen the movie 300, uh, this is that guy. You know, the dude with all the gold chains on his neck and the, the nose piercing and the earrings. And he travels with this eclectic group who is just partying everywhere they go. It's that guy. Uh, he loves to party. He's all about this big, lavish, luxurious lifestyle. And so he throws the greatest party in the history of humanity. Um, he parties for 180 days straight. It's like you know, like uh, ACDC on tour. He parties for six months, and he tells his attendants, there's no such thing as a last call. There's no cutoff. If someone wants another glass of wine, you better find another glass of wine. And so this just turns into total debauchery. So after six months of hardcore partying and drinking, obviously he makes a wise decision, right? So that was a joke. <laughs> so he... Decides after six months of partying, he's pretty drunk. He goes, hey, you know what? 
my wife Vashti is pretty hot, the queen. I should, I should get her out here so all my, my friends can see how hot she is. And so he sends an attendant to go fetch her, and she goes, no, I'm not doing that. That's, that's objectifying. I'm not going to be an object for him to just show off like that. And so she refuses to come. Well, you can imagine how well the drunk, luxurious king responds to being told no. And so he decides, well, she's not the queen anymore. And now there is an opening in that spot. He is looking for a new queen. And that's where we start in the story. This is Esther 2.2. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for a beautiful young virgin for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. No duh, that advice appealed to the king, right? Someone comes and says, hey, you know what's a good idea? Let's get all the hottest women together, and then you can just pick which ones you like the best. And he goes, oh, that's a good idea. So basically, this turns into the first season of The Bachelor. They go around the entire country, they round up all the hottest women, they bring them before the king, and it's going to be just a big beauty contest. And it's, he puts them all in his harem. He gets all of them. It's not like the actual Bachelor, but one of them is going to be queen. And so they go from city to city looking for the most beautiful women that they can find. And it's in this context that we're introduced to Esther. And so Esther is a Jewish woman living in Persia at the time, and she is living under the care of her cousin Mordecai, who um, took her under his wing after her parents passed away. And so uh, apparently Esther is very beautiful, and she's chosen as one of the women to be taken to be part of this big search for the next queen. Esther 2.8 says this, When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor immediately. He provided her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So, Esther... Uh, instantly wins over the favor of the person who, who's overseeing all these women, and he starts giving her special treatment, and it's really obvious that she's emerging as one of the favorites to maybe win this whole contest and become the next queen. But the entire time, she's hiding the secret. Mordecai has told her, don't, don't tell them that you're, you're Jewish. Just let them think that you're Persian. And so she's kept it a secret. But she's quickly moving up and up in the ranks. And so they spend a full year giving these women beauty treatments. Um, I don't know. It, it takes my wife like two hours in the morning. So I guess a, a year seems reasonable. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so yes, it, she's very beautiful. It's, it works. So uh, they spend a year doing beauty treatments on these women. And then after that time, they are presented to the king. And each one of them gets one shot. They get one night with the king to impress him and prove why they should be the queen. And so Esther waits for an entire year. She prepares an entire year for this one moment. Esther 2.16 says, She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. 
Now, the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So, again, this is a king that loves to party. She wins him over, and he says, great, let's throw a giant party in honor of you. He makes it a holiday. He celebrates. He goes all out to celebrate her coronation. This is like the Cinderella moment, right? She's gone from rags to riches. She was just a poor orphan foreigner in this country, and now she's just been named the queen. But this is also the point in the story where it takes a turn. King Xerxes uh, appoints this man named Haman as his right-hand man, and Haman's very prideful, and he walks around and says, I'm only second to the king. Everyone better bow down before me. And so he walks around just to make people bow to him. Well, he comes across Mordecai, who's hanging out at the palace because he wants to check on Esther, and when Haman walks into Mordecai's presence, everyone but Mordecai bows. And Haman doesn't like this. And so he says, why aren't you bowing? And Mordecai tells him that it's because he's Jewish, because he only bows before God and the king. He's not going to bow before some man. Well, Haman doesn't like this. And so Haman goes to the king, and he gets the king drunk, and he starts spinning these stories about the Jewish people. And he says, hey, did you know that, that there's a whole group of people that are just like separate from everyone else living in our country. They, they think they're better than us. They don't partake in any of our cultural practices because they don't want to defile themselves because they're more pure than us. They don't even follow the king's laws. They won't even bow down. They don't respect you and they don't trust your authority. They're a threat. And so Haman comes up with this plan on one day and he, he casts lots. He rolls dice to figure out which day. On one specific day, he says, let's kill all of them. And the king says, okay, let's do it. Esther 3.13 says, dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that they could be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. The king doesn't care. He goes on with his life. He goes back to partying and drinking, but the rest of the city falls into a panic. They don't know what's going to happen but they know that they're on the verge of a full-blown genocide. They know it's going to be a bloodbath, that there's going to be fighting and killing and massacring in the streets. And so Mordecai runs to the palace, and he can't get to Esther because he doesn't have access, but he gets a hold of one of her assistants, and he says, give her this, and he hands her the decree, and he says, go, go tell Esther that she has to go before the king and tell him that he can't do this. And so the attendant goes to Esther, and she reads the decree, and she sends back this message. Esther 4.10. Then she instructed him, her assistant, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their life but 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So Esther says, I can't. He, he hasn't called me in a month. 
And if I just go before him, my life is on the line. He either extends that gold scepter and says, go ahead, come into my presence, or he has me executed. And so she does not want to do this. But Mordecai responds. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent his re this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's scared. She's nervous. She doesn't want to do this. She thinks, you know, no one knows I'm Jewish. Maybe I can just wait this out. And Mordecai says, you have to do something. But she doesn't know what she's supposed to do. And so she says, ah, okay, pray for me. Fast. All of you just pray, and I'll pray. And in three days, I'll go before the king, and I don't know what I'm going to say, and I don't know what I'm going to do, but something. So this is the part in the story where every other book of the Bible, this is where God shows up, right? In every other book in the Bible, Esther would pray, and she would fast for three days. And at the end of that three days, God would show up to her in a vision. And he would say, when you go before the king, say this. Or, or some crazy miracle would happen, and the situation would get worked out before it came to this. But that doesn't happen in Esther. In Esther, there's no reply from God. There's nothing. There's just silence. And yet somehow in the silence, Esther finds direction. And I think it's because of this. I think it's because of what Mordecai says to her when he says, who knows, maybe you were made queen for such a time as this. Because Esther realizes this isn't about a decision. This isn't about one individual isolated choice that I have to make about do I go before the king or not. This is about vision. Because vision dictates direction and decisions. It's the first point in your notes. Vision dictates direction and decisions. And so Esther in this moment realizes there's a bigger vision for my life. This isn't about one decision. This is about understanding that God has a plan for me. He's going to use me to do something. And she allows that vision to dictate her direction. And I think this is true for us as well. When we look at all the individual decisions that we have to make, it can be overwhelming. It can feel like, how am I supposed to make the right choice every single time? There's so many decisions I have to make. But if we understand our vision, all of the individual decisions fall into place. All of them just come in to support what that overall vision is. They all, every decision we make moves us closer or further away from accomplishing that vision. So, for example, for me, uh, the vision that I believe God's put on my heart for my life is to plant churches. And so when I come to make decisions, every decision I make is about, does that get me closer or further away from fulfilling that vision that God has for my life? When I graduated from... Uh, grad school, I had the opportunity to interview for a couple uh, film industry jobs that I would have I loved. They would have pushed me towards a, a career that I've always wanted. And at the same time, I also got an interview for a pastoral position here. 
And so I was looking at it, and one of them was easier. It would have been easier. I was living in Hollywood already at the time. I was developing connections. I had just gotten a degree in that field. It was probably financially better. But that didn't get me closer to the vision. And so I ended up here. When Rachel and I started dating pretty early on, I told her, I said, it doesn't matter how much I love you, which is a really romantic thing to say. Women love that. I said, it doesn't matter how much I love you. If you're not called to church plant, we can't get married. Because every decision I make has to be moving towards fulfilling that vision. And so Esther finds vision, which leads her directions. And we have to do the same. We have to understand what the vision for our lives are if we're going to be making decisions and finding direction. So how do we do that? How do we find vision? We'll get there. Let's finish the story. So Esther risks her life. She goes in front of the king, and she waits as he sits there motionless with the scepter in his hand. She gets nervous. Did she just blow it? Is she about to be executed? I mean, I wouldn't be telling you the story if that's how that ended, so you probably get where this is going. But she's standing there feeling all of this until he extends that golden scepter towards her and says, hey, come in. What's up, Esther? She comes in and he says, I love you. You are my favorite. That's why I made you the queen. What do you want? I'll give you anything you want. You can have up to half of my kingdom. And Esther says, um, what I want is, um, could you and Haman come to a banquet tomorrow? And the king says, is there going to be wine? She says, yeah, it's a banquet. And he says, okay, we'll be there. So the king and Haman show up the next day at a banquet. The wine's flowing. They're having a good time. They get a little drunk. And the king says, ah, Esther, I love you. What, what do you want? What do you, anything you want, up to half of my kingdom, you can have it. What do you want? And she says, uh, okay, well, the reason I asked you to this banquet was um, to see if you would come to another banquet tomorrow. And the king says, is there going to be wine? And she says, yeah. He says, okay, we'll be there. We'll come to another banquet tomorrow. So the next day, she throws another banquet. The king shows up. She's serving them wine. The wine's flowing. They're getting drunk. They're having a good time. The king says, ah, Esther, I love you. What is all this about? Why do you keep throwing parties? What, what is going on? You clearly want something. Tell me what it is that you want. I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And finally, Esther can't drag her feet any longer. She's scared and nervous, but she knows she just has to get it out there. And so Esther tells him everything. Esther tells him that she's Jewish. She tells him that Haman is actually this monster who's trying to destroy them. She tells him that she can't stand by while he destroys her people, and she begs the king to do something about it. Esther 8.1 says, That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overhauling, overruling and dispatching what Haman, son of Hamadatha, 
the Agite devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther and they have impaled him on the pole that he set up. Haman was getting ready for this day. He knew, all right, here's when I crush my enemies. And so he set up this giant like 75 foot pole that he was gonna impale Mordecai on and he was so excited to watch him die. And Xerxes says, hmm, actually that's for you. And they kill Haman on it. It's pretty gnarly. Um, and so Xerxes says, okay, I will, I'm obviously not going to let them kill you, Esther, and your family. So the whole thing's off. And actually, let's go the other way with it. Anyone who was planning on doing this, anyone who was going to go out and kill the Jewish people, uh, Jews, you can kill them. Go for it. And so it turns into a slaughter, but the other way around. And Esther and Mordecai actually get pretty vengeful. They go after Haman's kids. They, they, they kill all of Haman's sons. And it's just this total annihilation of people. And it says that people in, in Persia got so afraid of the Jews that they started converting to Judaism. They said, hey, whoa, whoa, we don't know what's going on here, but we're with you now. Don't touch us. And so the once maligned Jews, these people who are on the brink of extinction, are now being protected. They're now the ones that everyone wants to be. Esther risks her life and uses her position as queen to save the lives of her people. But some people have asked, why is this book in the Bible? Uh, if the Bible is supposed to be the story of God, why would you include a book that, yeah, it's a good story, and I understand why it's part of Jewish tradition and stuff, but why would you put that in the Bible? God's not in it. And, and not just that, but those are some pretty jacked up characters. Uh, you know, in church, we like to hold up Old Testament characters like, be like Moses and be like Abraham. But Esther and Mordecai are pretty jacked up. Like, they're vengeful. They kill a lot of people. The story is full of, like, sex and drinking and murder. It's like Game of Thrones um, or like a weekend at the dorms. <laughs> oh. <laughs> why include this? Why, why put this story in here? Well, I don't think we're supposed to look at this and want to be like Esther. I don't think we're supposed to read this story and say, okay, how do I try to be like Esther? Sometimes we kind of read scripture like that. We read it and we say, almost like a, a formula. The character in the story did X and God did Y. So if I do X, then God will do Y. But that's not why scripture exists. That's not the point. The point isn't to teach us how to be like Esther. The point is to show us God's faithfulness. The point is so that we can see his silent sovereignty. The point is so that we can look at the story and see Jesus. Esther is actually about Jesus. The second point in your notes is that Esther is an illustration of the gospel. You see, like most Old Testament figures, maybe even all of them, Esther is really a foreshadowing of Jesus. Esther is a story that exists and was circulated and, and built up into this mythology in the Jewish culture so that they would be ready and expecting what the Messiah was going to do. Esther's a story of someone who, who puts their life on the line by going in front of the king and pleading for the lives of their people. And 
Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that a couple thousand years after the story is written. You see, because of our sin, because you and I messed up, because we didn't do what the king told us to do, we earned punishment and condemnation. We were the ones facing death. And yet, Jesus acted as our intercessor. He went before the king and put his life on the line in order to plead for our lives. But Jesus went a step further than Esther did. Jesus actually laid down his life. He, he sacrificed himself. He died to save us. He traded his innocence for our guilt. He said, yeah, I know they deserve to be punished. Punish me instead. And so Jesus sacrificed himself to save us. But because he was God, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and established God's kingdom. And so when we look at the story of Esther, that's what we should see, that this was setting up the expectation for what God was going to do in an even greater, more eternal way. And not just that, but we can look at Esther and we can see that God's faithfulness supersedes our unfaithfulness. The reason that the, the book doesn't hide the facts about Esther and Mordecai is that the Bible wants us to see how jacked up they were. The Bible wants us to understand that they were broken sinners too. Because the point is that even Esther, even the queen who saved a nation, was a broken sinner who needed a savior. And if God can use jacked up, broken sinners like Esther and Mordecai, he can use us. The story is not about Esther. The story is not about trying to be like her. The story is about God and what he is doing and his faithfulness. We're going to talk about how to find direction in our lives, but we need to start with salvation. That's your first action point. Start with salvation. Before we can discover the plan that God has for our lives, we have to submit to his gospel. We have to accept that trade that I just described. We have to, to say, yes, Jesus, I will take your innocence in exchange for my guilt. If we're going to know what the king wants us to do, we have to start by becoming part of his kingdom. And so if you are in here today and you have never done that, if you've never said, God, I am sorry for my sin, I will follow you from this day forward, this is where you start. Once we do that, where do we go from there? How do we find direction in our lives? First, I think we need to identify some pitfalls that we fall into. The first one, uh, things that we need to avoid when making decisions is feelings. We live in a very feelings-driven culture today. Feelings trump truth. It doesn't matter what the truth is. I don't like it, so my truth is this. And if you tell me I'm wrong, then you're just being mean. And we've done this thing where we've confused our feelings with our faith. And we've invented this mentality that the highest form of truth is peace. We say, I have peace about it. And that means I have license to do whatever I want to do. Yes, I, I have decided to abandon my family and go start a career as a rock star. And I have peace about it. So don't try to tell me I'm wrong because this is my truth. Well, that's ridiculous. God, in Jeremiah 17, God describes the human heart as deceitful above all things. Our feelings lie to us and manipulate us all the time. 
We see that in the story. Esther's feelings said, don't get involved. This is a bad idea. Be afraid. Be nervous. Be anxious. Don't do this. But obviously, that wasn't right. The second thing that we have to avoid is comfort. We love comfort. All of our decisions are about being comfortable. How can I be safer? How can I be more stable? How can I have more financial security? How can I be comfortable? But the right decision is rarely the easy, comfortable one. The comfortable decision for Esther was stay in the palace. Keep living life as the queen. Don't get involved. And yet she risked that comfort. The comfortable choice for Jesus is stay in heaven. Don't come be a person. Don't, don't come be crucified and brutally beaten and mocked and rejected. But comfort is rarely the right choice. And the last thing we need to avoid is control. We love control. We want it all in our timing. We want it all in our ability. But I will tell you that the times in my life when I have felt the least direction and the least vision is when I had the control. God does not talk to me and tell me his vision and his direction as long as I'm holding on to mine. It is the moments where I let go and I am out of control that he says, okay, I'll tell you where to go. I'm very goal-oriented, and so I like to be moving towards things. And so if God tells me the whole plan, I try to rush through all the steps as fast as possible and get to the goal. And so God does not reveal the whole plan to me most of the time. Usually it's just the next step. And he says, trust me that once, once the timing's right, I'll give you the step after that. And that is the worst feeling in the world. That's horrible. There's, it's so uncomfortable and it, it, to be out of control like that but it takes that trust that he's guiding. So those are the things to avoid. And we're going to look at, at what we should consider when we're making decisions. But what I want you to hear today is that God has a vision for your life. God has a plan for you specifically. God, when he was designing history, he had a mission that he was going to accomplish and he had a vision for the part that you are going to play. You're not here just to get rich or be happy or be comfortable. Our goal as Christians is not to be a better person or to be more spiritual. God has a vision for you. The last thing that Jesus said to his followers before he, he left earth and returned to heaven, he said, here's what it's about. Here's the mission. Go make disciples who can make disciples and teach them to obey everything that I've told you. Go make disciples. That's the mission. That's what's, what's written on these walls. Our mission is to reach people with that good news that I described to you of him trading his innocence for our guilt and to teach people what it means to follow Jesus. That is the mission. And so we're going to talk about vision in a second about how we do that. But I need you to understand that that is the mission. Any vision, any decision that we are going to make has to come from that. 
God has a plan for you, how he is going to use you to make disciples. So the vision is the specific plan of how that happens. How do we find it? Well, like I said earlier, vision dictates direction and decisions. This is gonna be the prism that we filter our decisions through. And so the, the mission is that constant, but the vision is how we accomplish it. About a year and a half ago here at NBCC, we started talking through a vision statement. We had this mission from the beginning, but we needed vision. How do we do that? How do we make disciples? Well, real love on mission is what we came up with. And so we, we launched that vision about a year ago. And for the next couple weeks, for the rest of January, Pastor Mike is going to be leading us as we revisit that conversation about what does that mean? We're going to re-envision the church with what it means to be real love on mission and how that helps us accomplish the goal of reaching people with the good news of Jesus Christ. So in the same way, we have to find that vision for our lives. That's the mission. How do we accomplish that? Well, the first thing that we have to do is we have to pray, right? Don't make any decisions without praying about it first. Once we've prayed, once we've talked to God about it, start by looking at Scripture. When God isn't speaking to us specifically, we have to look at what he has said universally. Because he's not going to tell us something that contradicts what he's already said. So by reading the Bible and getting familiar with who he is and the things that he likes and dislikes, his heart, we can use that to make our decisions. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my dad is not here to give me specific advice. I can't ask specific questions. But because he did run a nonprofit organization, he wrote a book about marriage. This is a goofy picture my parents took on a cruise. Um, but they wrote this book about how to have a healthy, Christ-centered marriage. And so while I cannot ask specific questions, while I cannot receive specific guidance about what my dad would do and how I should act in my marriage, I have what he's generally written. I have what he has universally said are the keys to a healthy marriage. But imagine if I said, I don't know, I'm just too busy to read this. I really want to know, like, I, I really want to know, and I wish he would talk to me, but I just don't have time to read this. Or it, it's pretty boring. I, I, I just can't get into it. Or I tried to read it, but I didn't really understand it, so I stopped. Uh, or, you know, it, this was written like 10, 15 years ago. It doesn't really apply today. Or this wasn't written specifically to me, so it doesn't really help. That would be stupid. I would hope that one of you would come up to me and say, Shane, you're being stupid. We have the same thing with God. God, whether he's speaking to us directly or not, is speaking universally. So many times we say, God, I wish you would talk to me. And he's saying, there are thousands of pages worth of words that I have said to you. Why don't you read it? God may not answer our specific question, but he has given us the general direction. We have to start with scripture. In Next Steps, uh, which I mentioned earlier, we talk about this concept of canon. So in biblical times, uh, there was a measuring stick called the canon. And so let's say this is three feet, and I've measured this again and again, and I know that this is three feet. And so as I'm making bricks, I need the bricks to be exactly three feet. 
So what I do is I measure them against the stick. If they're the same size, okay, I know the brick is three feet, accept it. If they're a different size, I know the brick is not three feet because I know this is three feet and I reject it. The Bible is called canon. The Bible is called the canonical Bible. So what that means, we're not saying there is no truth outside the Bible. We're not saying the Bible is comprehensive, that the Bible has every answer to every question you could ever have, because it's not true. What we are saying is the Bible is canon. The Bible is a measuring stick. There is other truth in the world, but I know this is true. And so as I experience other things, this is the measuring stick that I hold them up against. And if they measure up, I accept them. And if they don't, I reject them. And so when our feelings or our comfort or our control or some self-help book we read or some word from God or anything that we experience in this life pops up, we measure it against the measuring stick of truth, Scripture. And if it measures up, then we can accept it. But we have to start with the measuring stick. This is how we know when peace is genuine or when it's deceptive. The second thing that we need to look at is his spirit. So we believe that uh, once you become a follower of God, he is with us. And as he's with us, he empowers us to do the things that he wants done, the, the things that are going to bring him glory and build up his kingdom. So what is God's spirit doing in your life? One of the ways to figure this out is what is your gifting? All of us are uniquely gifted. You have some manifestation of God's spirit that allows you to do things for his glory that other people cannot do. For me, my gifting is preaching. When, when I stand up here and I get to preach the gospel, there is literally nothing in the world that feels the way this feels. There is nothing that makes me feel the, the fulfillment and the, the completion in my soul the way that this does. And so you have to use your gifting. You're, that's why God designed you the way he designed you, to be in your gifting. So you have to figure out what is your gifting. But it's not enough to just know what gifting is. You also have to know what your passion is. So when I was, uh, when I was up in Reno, Nevada, I was working as a junior high pastor, but there was an opening in our children's ministry. And we needed someone to run the children's ministry services uh, and I got stuck doing that. And so uh, basically kids always like me, and sometimes I tolerate them. Sometimes. And so I got to preach every week. I got to use my gifting. It was like, this is awesome. But it was to a bunch of five-year-olds, and then I had to deal with a bunch of five-year-olds for an hour and a half, and I quickly burned out because I am not passionate about children's ministry. That is the wrong area. So even if you're in the right gifting, you have to be in the right area of passion. Here at MVCC, we want to help you with that. And so we have a spiritual gifts test that is a gift mix. It asks you a series of questions to help figure out what, what direction you should be pointed in. And it's not just about gifting, it's also about passion, because those things have to line up. So if you have our church app, you can take the spiritual gifts test on our app so that you can get an idea of where you should start exploring this. Another way to do it is figure out what makes you righteously angry. Not just like, hey, I'm stuck in traffic and someone cut me off angry, but what makes you angry in a good way? For me, uh, I get really angry when people make the Bible boring. When people talk about it like it's a textbook or they, they read it like it's an essay and they read it in a monad and thus saith the Lord. I'm like, oh my gosh, 
And that's because one of my passions is, is a gospel-centric narrative style. I, I, I think this is a beautiful story, a, a romantic story between God and humanity. I think it's full of awesome stuff. But if we just sit here and read it boring, you can read words like harem and all the stuff that we read in Esther and there's no reaction. But when you sit and think through like, oh my gosh, what? they just impaled a dude on a 75-foot spike. It comes alive. What are the things that make you righteously angry? That's probably an area that you should be involved in. Is it watching people get mistreated? Is it discrimination? What is it? Is it when people don't step up and volunteer? Is it selfish people? Is it when it takes 20 minutes to park because there's not a parking team? What is your area of frustration? Because that's where you should probably be involved. So look for what his spirit is doing in your life. And then look at your story. I think we need to start looking at the testimonies of what God has done in our lives. And so if you've never written out your story before, I want to challenge you to go home and do that. Or even better, find someone that you trust and share your story with them. Because as you talk through your history, certain themes are going to start to pop up. You're going to see stuff that sticks out. Those things are, are preparation or challenges. I think everything in our life is supposed to prepare us for the direction God is taking us or is supposed to be set up as a challenge that God's vision will overcome. So for example, I have, the apartment that I live in now is like the 24th or 25th different place that I've lived. Uh, I'm 27. So I move about once a year and I love that. I love the change. I need change. The idea of just like the same thing forever drives me crazy. And so as a kid, I looked at my gifting and my passion, and I saw, okay, that looks like I'm supposed to be a pastor. I talked to the godly people in my life. They said, yeah, we see that. I read scripture, and it said like, yeah, okay, so I'm supposed to be a pastor. How am I going to do that? I rejected that calling for a long time because I said, I can't be in one place for 40 years. I'm not going to do that. I'll go crazy. And so when I got a little older and I found out about church planting and it's all the pastoral duties, but constant change and moving, I was like, oh, I understand how God has been preparing me for that. My wife, Rachel, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. She's moved once in her life, and that was when we got married. She hates change. If I put the spaghetti strainer in the wrong cupboard, it's like a whole thing. The whole routine is thrown off, and we have to throw out the pasta. She loves stability and consistency. And so, like I said, when, when we started dating, I said, I can't marry you unless you are called to this. And so she started praying about it and talking to God about it. And when she came to me and said, I've talked to God about it, and I'm supposed to do this, and I know what it means giving up, I took that very seriously. And anyone that knows her and knows how much she loves the consistency and stability can see that this must be God because that's not a decision she would ever make on her own. What are the themes in your life? What's going on in your past that God is either using to prepare you or he's setting up to be challenged by the vision that he has for your life? Nothing in your past is wasted. Those things that you think you have to be ashamed of, God is gonna recycle that. 
God is going to use that, those things that have happened to you, that you've done your life. All of those decisions have led you to where you are now. They have made you who you are, and God has a vision for that person. What is your story? Once you've done all of that, talk to the godly supporters in your life. Talk through all of this with the people who you trust. But they got to have the same measuring stick. If you're talking to someone whose measuring stick is emotion, and you tell them, hey, I think God's telling me to do this, they're going to say, no, that's scary. You have to have people with the same measuring stick. That's why we push life groups so much. Because we want to foster that community here. We want to give you those relationships where you can connect with people over the same measuring stick. So, once you do all of that, you're ready to put it all together. What I want for you today is I want you to be able to leave here with the tools to write out a vision statement for your life. Now, that vision, again, is going to be centered on the mission of making disciples. This is not your vision for your life. This is God's vision for your life. And his mission is to make disciples. So whatever your, your vision is has to center around accomplishing that mission. The goal can't be to make you rich or happy or safe or, or comfortable or a better person or any of that. It's about how do I make disciples? What is God's vision for how you are going to do that? Your vision statement should have three things. It should have an action, it should have a target, and it should have a method. What are you going to do? Who are you going to focus on? How are you going to do it? It's that simple. So I'll give you mine for example. Okay, so my gifting is preaching. I'm passionate about storytelling and about teaching. Uh, my life shows that I thrive on constant change. I've talked to the godly supporters in my life, and they all affirm that. And so when I look at it, I put it all together, and I come up with something like this. God's vision for my life is for me to plant churches that reach the unchurched and stagnant believers through a gospel-centric narrative approach. I'll read that again. God's vision for my life is for me to plant churches that reach the unchurched and stagnant believers through a gospel-centric narrative approach. Shouldn't be complicated, shouldn't be too long. It has to be simple, and it has to be true to you. Because once you have this, all your major decisions get run across this statement. Does it move me closer or further from fulfilling this vision? All your financial, your employment, your relationship, your education, your living situation, all of it, does it move you closer or further away from accomplishing your vision. So your homework for this week is go home and write out your vision statement. Look at scripture. Look at your spiritual gifting and what you're passionate about. Tell your story to someone. Talk to the godly influences you have in your life and put together the vision statement for your life. How is God going to use you to make disciples? Esther found herself in a place where she needed to make a decision and wasn't hearing from God directly. But because of her gifting, because of the position she was in as queen, because of what scripture said and who the character of God that she knew, 
because of her story, because of her Jewish heritage and the, the past where she had seen Mordecai step in and defend her when she was defenseless, because of all this, she's able to see the vision for her life as someone who is more than just a queen. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that when he comes and intercedes on our behalf and lays down his life for us. And now, because of that, we get to join in on his mission to change the world by making disciples who make disciples. My fear, church, is that sometimes we get so stuck on the idea that we have to know the specific vision that we don't do the universal. The last thing that my dad said to me before, um, before he passed was, love God, love your wife, do what you're supposed to do. I don't get to ask follow-ups. I don't get to ask clarification. I don't get to ask what that means in every situation. I just have to go off of that. That is the general advice that he gave me. And so when I'm in situations with Rachel, I could allow that to paralyze me. I could say, ah, oh, he didn't say what that means in this situation where she's asking me to do the dishes and I don't want to and I don't feel good. I could get so stuck on the specifics that I do nothing. Or I can say, I don't know what it looks like specifically in this case, but I know that the general vision is to love her, and so I'm going to do the decision that most reflects that. You may or may not have the specific vision for your life, but you have the general calling as a follower of Christ. You are called to make disciples. God wants to use you right now to change the world around you, and this is the way he's going to do it. You may not know the specific vision, but the universal is go make disciples. So I want to leave you with this. Go accomplish the universal and then as you search for the specific. And this week, sit down, write out your vision statement. Start using that as the way that you make decisions and understand that we are on mission with Jesus. We are all supposed to change the world for him by making disciples. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you that you choose to use broken sinners like us. Jesus, I thank you that you loved us enough to lay down your life for us. God, I pray that for everyone in here, we would feel the weight of that universal vision, that you wouldn't allow us to not do what you have called us to do in making disciples. And Lord, as we do that, I pray that you would reveal the specific vision you have for each of us. You would show us the unique way that you are planning on using each and every one of us to change the world with your gospel. God, I pray that you would send us out on mission. And Jesus, I thank you for choosing to use us. I love you and I praise you and I pray this in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We're so glad you were able to join us today. If you'd like more information on this teaching or any other teaching, check out our website at mvcchome.org.